Well, what matters the most about your life? In James chapter 4, he asked us, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. What matters so much in this life? Being a good spouse, that matters. Meeting all the deadlines at work, that, that matters. Experiences and travel and nature and hikes, those things matter. Yet if we're all honest, I think we would admit that we have shared an experience of vanity, a feeling about the world. What, what really matters? What's the end of all of this? All my decisions, all my goings, my comings, my spendings? I think that's a question that we ask ourselves much more often than we probably tell each other. What's the point of all of this? It may not be a question that you thought Revelation was going to answer. But I think today as we begin to look at Revelation chapter 12 through 14, John is going to give us a peek through the world as we know it into another dimension of our reality. He's going to show us, peeking through the veil of our reality, what is the case in a spiritual reality of which we are part. And Christians, I think, are particularly prone when persecuted, when struggling, when the minority, when not welcome, to wonder where this is all going, wonder what matters so much. If we look at our own lives with our own eyes, we may see a mundane life, going and coming and going and coming, but for the Christian, we don't see the world that way. We see something else at work and at play in the world, a spiritual reality. What we are going to see in Revelation 12 through 14 this week and the coming weeks is that we are a part of a grander, cosmic, spiritual existence than we can imagine. In fact, the only way we can come to imagine it and even contemplate it and see it and live in it is by faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we open your word to see your word, to hear your word for what it is, the work of the word of God, which is at work in those who believe. This is not the word of man. This is your word, divinely inspired. It is able to reprove and correct and rebuke and train us so that we can walk in every way of righteousness. So would you use your word to help us in that way today? Help us think rightly about you, about our world, and about ourselves, that we might in turn obey and walk with you. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. As we're walking through the book of Revelation here at the church, as is our normal diet to walk through books of the Bible, slowly preaching all the parts of the Bible, we've come to this chapter, Revelation chapter 12. You might see a subtitle, The Dragon and the Woman. Last week, we spent time looking at chapter 8, 6 through 11, four chapters at once. This week, we're just going to do the first two-thirds of this chapter. We're going to slow down for a few chapters. Last week, we saw that John helped us realize what our earth is like by helping define what's going on in our world. This week, we're going to see John kind of peers behind history as we know it and is showing the backside spiritual reality of what's happening in our world, why things are the way that they are. To show what truly matters by faith in Christ, John is shown and is showing us another dimension of what we're going to see here is a very familiar history. Look again at chapter 12 and listen carefully again and see if this <clears throat> history does not sound somewhat familiar to you. We've got seasons coming upon us. Both of them, in my mind, ought to be serving as much turkey as possible. The latter, which we'll focus on for a moment, is red and green and includes trees. Verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his Heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,200 and 60 days. And to cut to the point, I think the woman giving birth here seems to represent Israel, represented by Mary, who is giving birth to Christ. It's a pretty general understanding, pretty common understanding of this passage. You see how the narrative here is about matters which happen on earth, but we are being shown an invisible spiritual reality behind it, right? There's, there's enough familiarity in this narrative to go, oh, that sounds like Mary giving birth to Jesus, and yet it's kind of peeling back, showing us parts of the nativity that weren't in Matthew, that aren't as explicit in the book of Luke, for example. Christmas is not that close, but I know it's close enough. Some of you are shopping for Christmas presents, and maybe some of you are sinning by listening to Christmas music. I don't know. <laughs> I know that in your nativity there are probably camels, some donkeys, but I want to ask you, in your nativity, is there a dragon looming over the woman, waiting for her to give birth so that he may devour the child. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if your nativity includes a dragon 
hovering over no one. So we, I think we should start a business together on Etsy or Pinterest, a theological revelation-based nativity set that we could sell and all the money will go to missions. I don't think it would sell that well. It's not as pretty during Christmas to have a dragon hovering over Mary. But what's the point here? When Jesus was born, it was not merely that men sought to kill him, but that in the reality unseen, there was a great evil dragon that sought his life. When Jesus was born and from then on, the dragon was seeking to devour him his whole life. But what happened? It says the male child who was meant to rule the nations with a rod of iron, that he was caught up to God. It seems to be a reference to Jesus' ascension. This child is taken up to be with God near the throne where he is. It just seems to kind of skip the resurrection. It seems to kind of skip the crucifixion. He was born and then he was caught up to God. Why? Why is this emphasizing that the that the, the child was born and then caught up. It, it seems to be emphasizing the backside of the story, the spiritual side of the story. The point is that the dragon, the invisible to the eyes dragon, wanted to kill the child, but short story, he failed. Jesus ascended and went to heaven. The woman, meanwhile, is given a place where she could be nourished postpartum. Her provision is the same amount of time I think it seems best to understand it as the same time period that the witnesses are given to witness just a chapter earlier. But what's the main point here? When Jesus was born, it was not just Jesus as a man and the Israelites and Herod who remembered tried to have Jesus killed by killing all the babies under two in Judea. This sign in Revelation is telling us that the earthly reality of Jesus' life was driven and was working in and a part of an unseen spiritual reality. And as John is watching this sign unfold, he next sees Michael and the angels fighting the dragon, not on earth but in heaven in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So this dragon that wanted to kill Christ is now in the midst of a war in the heavenly places against Michael and his angels. And the dragon and his angels fought back, those that he had swept up with his tail. But he, the dragon, was defeated, was past tense defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. A couple of things on this spiritual reality that John is seeing. Number one, this dragon is now identified. This dragon is that ancient enemy of God. And his people, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world, that ancient serpent. This is that ancient devil who was in the garden. This is that ancient Satan who has been opposing God and his people through the entirety of history. 
You read through the Gospels, you might see it. You might see some of Satan's demons, some of his demons causing trouble, confronting Jesus, ruining people's lives. But the dragon the entire time is in the background, opposing and fighting in heaven. Number two, the dragon is thrown down to earth. This dragon who is Satan is thrown down to earth. Don't miss the change in location from the child of the woman and the dragon. Where did the dragon begin in this account in chapter 12? Seemingly up in heaven where he went to war, where he was watching outside of the earthly realm supposedly. But where did the child begin in Revelation chapter 12? On earth, born of a woman. But Jesus is taken up to the throne while Satan is thrown down to the earth. This juxtaposition of locations should stand out to us. These are the results of their lives and their ministries. Jesus is caught up. Satan is thrown down. The sun is up near the throne. The dragon who lost heaven's battle is now thrown down to the earth. This is the vision, the peeking back behind what we see into the spiritual reality. And it may seem like on earth, you're living where the dragon wars on, like your war never ends here, like we're deserted here as Christians. Or like the disciples in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended up into heaven, we just saw Christ the Messiah disappear into a cloud. And what did the disciples do in Acts 1? They just stood there and they gazed at the sky. Like, there went the Christ. There went our Messiah. And an angel has to come along and tell them, quit staring up in the sky. Jesus is going to come back just like he's left. But now... John in Revelation seems to be showing us what happened when Jesus got beyond the clouds at the ascension. Well, what happened beyond the sky in heaven? For John has revealed what takes us faith to see. And this is so encouraging to the Christian. The gospel, the work, the life of Jesus Christ goes beyond the crucifixion, beyond the grave, beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his work for the saints goes into the heavenly places. And John is seeing and showing the continuation of what Christ did when he was caught up and went to be with God in heaven. He did not, as it seems to us in our eyes, leave to fight another day. What we're going to see is Christ left to fight in another place in the heavenly realms. He ascended not just to desert earth, but to go help take care of business in heaven, Michael and the angels fought and defeated Satan, and it says next, the authority of Christ has come. This is not, I don't think, the final authority of Christ coming on the earth, but the announcement of the authority of Christ over Satan totally and finally in the heavenly places. So look at chapter 12, verse 10. Next, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers 
has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the brothers, it seems, have conquered him, the devil, it seems, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Essentially, today, we're only going to really get as far as verse 11. Pick up when I come back in a few weeks in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. There's so much in this passage, there's no way we could get into it all today. But notice primarily that the reality of the brothers has changed in heaven. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. That ancient serpent Satan, the devil has been conquered. Notice the salvation and power and authority of Christ has come. This doesn't seem to be the end. This is an announcement in heaven about heaven. Salvation has come, meaning the accuser has been thrown down to earth. This sign seems to be showing us the reality of God, of Christ, of the angels, and the brothers so that we can see the unseen reality that we're a part of. The brothers conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. This is what John is teaching and preaching to Christians, to brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ. You conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and he's been thrown down. Jesus, or excuse me, Satan is referred to in, well, that's a mix-up. Satan is referred to in this passage as the accuser. The accuser. You ever have one of those pesky siblings or one of those OSHA Nazis at work who love to tell on you? I mean, everything they do, everything you do, they love to run and tell. They just run and tell. That's, that's their entire life boiled down to tattling on you. I remember one such occasion. I was out in the yard with my grandfather. You might have even heard this story before. My cousin and I were uh, having a hammer throwing contest. True story. This is what you do in Texas when you're bored. Through the hammer, through the hammer, through the hammer once, the hammer hits the door of my grandfather's red and white pickup, which was its own problem, but on the porch was my dear sweet cousin, Jared. Jared witnessed the entire event, and no sooner had the hammer made the sound in the side of the truck, Jared ran inside. We turned and looked, and Jared's already running inside. There's no catching Jared and locking him in the cow trailer, which would have been my plan. He gets inside, he runs, and he tells my grandfather, and just a breath later, who's coming out the door? My grandfather. (laughs) 
And by God's grace, my grandfather was a very gracious, though stern man. I'm extremely grateful for him. But this is kind of what we learn about Satan at the throne. Satan is the accuser who accuses them, the brothers, day and night before our God. As prosecutor, he takes up the case of our guilt. This is what Satan loves to do. He sees sinners down there on earth, and he loves to run and tell God, look what they did today. They cannot keep the law. You should punish them. They are wrong in your eyes. Satan is the cosmic accuser. Now, in that moment when my grandfather came out, I, I knew what was going to happen, a mixture of grace and love and discipline. What do you think God's going to do when we're accused of our sin? How do you picture God and how he handles the incessant day and night accusations in his presence? Maybe you have drank again. Maybe you've been online again, been mean to your coworker again, maybe too fraternal with your coworker. And the only image of God that you have in your mind is that someone just might run and tell. And you're terrified. What if God were to really, really know me? Is that your view of God? John is seeing that for those in Christ, your relationship with God is not finally determined by heaven's prosecuting attorney, the accuser. Instead, Jesus died on the cross for sinners, he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven to go to the right hand of the throne of God. And right there where the accuser is accusing day and night, making his case before God about the sin of man, Jesus, who rose from the grave, ascended into the heavens, went right into the throne, right in the middle of the accusations, and said, It's finished. Here's my blood, like a priest coming into the temple, presenting blood as the sacrificed lamb for sin, so that Satan's mouth is shut forever in the throne room of God, because Jesus' blood is offered on behalf of sinners. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 says, For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, the holy places that we have built or the temple itself in Jerusalem, which are copies of true things, but Jesus has gone into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The accuser is thrown down, we have conquered, not by our own righteousness, not by our own claim, not by our own defense. We don't have a defense before God. We don't have footing to stand on our own righteousness before God. 
You don't want to go to God and say, search me and try me. I'm pretty sure I'm a good person. The prosecuting attorney is way too good. And we have way too much evidence contrary to the case. Our only hope is not our own defense or that Satan might lack some evidence in our lives, but that Christ would enter to God's presence present his blood to wash away our sin. And so, John sees the call for heaven to rejoice. Rejoice, heaven. What's happening right now on the peel back in in heaven, the, the peeking into heaven, what's happening right now? Heaven rejoices. It's in a disposition, in a state of rejoicing. Because the accuser has been thrown down and we're being invited to look into heaven with John and see heaven's rejoicing that Satan, our accuser, has been conquered by Christ, by his blood. They're rejoicing. What are you doing? Are you rejoicing? That's what heaven's doing, rejoicing. The conqueror has been thrown down. Our accuser has been thrown down. I was at the Dallas Cowboys game a few weeks ago to watch the Dallas Cowboys crush the Philadelphia Eagle into small pieces. A great joy of mine. I'm going to get as many sermon illustrations as I can out of this game. The very end of the game, my wife and I were there at the game together. We were in the stadium. We were in the room. I saw the touchdown with my eyes. Sure, I watched most of it on the screen that overtook the whole stadium. But I watched it. I breathed the same air as Dak Prescott. Ezekiel Elliott heard my cheers in his ears when he scored multiple touchdowns. My mom and my daughter were at home watching, and at the the very end of the game, I just FaceTimed. That's a verb now. FaceTimed my mom so that my daughter could watch my wife and I watch the game live. Now, they're watching the game on TV. I FaceTime so that they could see it like live, live, like with me through the camera so that when the buzzer hit zero, they were on FaceTime watching me, watching the game in person. They weren't there. They're still, they can't, they can't possibly get sweat on by Dak Prescott like I could, but they're watching. I wasn't that close. I don't have that kind of money, but they're watching via video a reality that they are, in fact, cheering and participating, a victory that they're enjoying. And that's what John's doing here. It is your victory. It is Jesus' blood throwing down our accuser in heaven. And it's showing us a reality. Yes, John's FaceTiming us so that we can see into heaven what is really going on in the spiritual reality around God's throne. And it's that Satan no longer, his tongue is clipped, his teeth are removed. He has no accusation to bring when Jesus' blood is there for the saints. And so heaven rejoices. You want something to rejoice about? There's, just don't look around too close on the earth. It's vanity. Oh, it's vanity. My love 
cowboys and my truck and life and our little house and dog, and it's, it's just all going away. It's just all going away. You want something to rejoice in. Heaven rejoices. The accuser no longer stands before the throne accusing the blood we have conquered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Heaven is up there rejoicing. Victory is won already. Maybe you have learned, it's been increasingly in the news the last couple of years, about the holiday Juneteenth. Are you familiar with this holiday? Any idea what year Juneteenth became an actual national holiday? It wasn't until Joe Biden instituted this as a holiday in 2021, this year, this summer. This is a holiday, though. It's a day of remembrance that's been celebrated mostly by African Americans going back to the year 1865. Juneteenth is an interesting day in history. Short for June 19th, it marks the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to take control of the state and ensure that all enslaved people be freed. As the announcement was working its way through the states over, the, over time that uh, it was going to be increasingly difficult to have slaves in certain places, some people began to move to Texas where there was kind of a safe haven for slavery. Uh, not too many slaves in the mid-1860s. By the year 1865, there were 250,000 slaves in the state of Texas, and they were now free. Isn't that amazing? They're free. Just freed from their enslavement. But did you know what day Abraham Lincoln actually signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed all slaves in the South? It was a full two and a half years earlier, on January 1st, 1863. For two and a half years, there was a formal, official, authorized declaration of freedom, but for two and a half years, it was not executed in Texas. It's unimaginable. Freed by declaration, freed in reality in a faraway land, living in slavery. Christians the accuser was thrown down 2,000 years ago when Jesus presented his blood before the throne of God. Sinners who trust in Jesus Christ have conquered and overcome the accuser ever since. We were free from our sin, free from accusation, justified by Jesus' blood when we confess our sin and by faith trust that Jesus' life and death would be applied to us. And friends, that is news that has been declared and has been final. Satan has been thrown down for some time now. The blood conquered every satanic accusation. 
When Satan accuses the saints about not being good enough, about not declaring the law enough, not being righteous enough, church, just remember, he's singing our song. That's how our songs go. That's how the songs go that we've sung this morning. There's a great song by Shane and Shane called Embracing Accusations. Their song is all about how Satan is singing the, the song of the redeemed. It's kind of a play. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide, the Christian would say, about Satan. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. Oh, the devil's singing over me the age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse so conveniently he forgot the refrain. Jesus saves. Christian, that's our song. The, the accusations against us actually are, are true. We've sinned against God. We are sinners, but our song is that we conquer by the blood for us. Jesus' righteousness in his life for us. And we conquer by the word of the testimony. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by their, the word of their testimony. That is, our testimony of Jesus' blood is how we war against Satan's accusations. For brothers conquer Satan and his accusations by the word of their testimony. We're seeing what Paul has taught us in Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, where? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the unseen places. Our warfare, though, is not with arrows, not with bullets, not with bombs. We are part of a grander cosmic spiritual reality where the accusing devil of history is overcome by the testimony of Jesus Christ. When we are accused, preach the gospel. When we are accused, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sin. That's how we overcome that, that's how we overcome every accusation about us through the blood of the Lamb. They overcame in the heavenly places. They overcame, it says, these brothers by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, the gospel itself. And then it says, look at the end of that verse, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is how they conquered this is how the brothers overcame the accuser. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony about the blood, and by not loving their lives even to death. We see in Revelation the implications, the spiritual reality of Jesus' call to forsake our own lives and follow Him even to death. Through Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been calling his disciples, calling all who would listen, all who would follow him to forsake their lives in order to follow him. To follow Jesus is not just to pick a new religion. To, to follow Jesus is not to just decide between Catholicism and Protestantism. It's, it's not to look at Hinduism and then just pick. This seems the most feasible. This, 
And this looks like the best worldview. Those things are important and true. But when Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls us, he bids us come and die. Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. I think we're going to see in John chapter 12 the reality of what it means to follow and know Jesus. That it ultimately becomes about not loving your life even to death. There are some interpretations of Revelation chapter 12 that this is a reference strictly to those who are being martyred and who have been martyred. I think there's warrant for that. I don't think that's absurd, but... Uh, there are all kinds of interpretations about all kinds of passages in Revelation. This would be a place that I, I personally diverge. I think it's talking about the brothers who love Christ more than their own lives. And many times that does lead to death, as we're going to see in the chapter ahead in weeks to come. But in John chapter 12, I want us to look at chapter 12, verses 20 to 26, and just see how the call, how what it means to follow Jesus is what John said in Revelation. They love not their lives even unto death. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not like SEAL team following Jesus. That's just what it means to follow Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 26, you might see a title that's something like Some Greeks Seek Jesus. <laughs> what, what a pair. What's this about? Well, Some Greeks Seek Jesus. Okay, profound title. Thank you, thank you. Chapter 12, verse 20. I did not mean to mock whoever wrote this in the Bibles. They're probably way smarter than I am. Verse 20. Now among those, we're going to pick this passage apart. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So it's in the text that they would say some Greeks. Something about the Greeks. The Greeks were known for seeking wisdom. They're high, philosoph high in philosophy. First Corinthians chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul says about them. Jews tend to seek signs. Greeks, they want wisdom. Greeks seek wisdom. So you've got these Greeks in verse 21. So they come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now it's interesting for John to note this moment that they came to Philip and that Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee. Don't miss what's happening. The Greeks come to ask Philip a question. This is culturally, it kind of looks like Harvard philosophy professor coming to ask a question from a redneck fisherman from Houston County. I can say that because that's the county that I'm from. Why would a Greek who's seeking wisdom and has at their fingertips all types of source of knowledge come to Philip with a question? Philip, who was from Bethsaida, a little fishing village on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is that city, that fishing village where, excuse me, back in chapter 6, that's where Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few fish. And now these Greeks want to come to Philip from Bethsaida, this fisherman, and they've got a question. And I think the author, John, is relishing the fact that these Greeks come to Philip from Bethsaida with a question. Look at verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Now catch this. If we don't catch this, I think this passage doesn't make sense. The Greeks want to, quote, see Jesus. This does not mean in the Greek language they simply want to lay eyes on him. As if Jesus is kept back in some tent and they want Philip to kind of pull back the curtain so they can look in there and, you know, take a selfie with him or something, right? No, they want to edon Jesus. That is, they want to realize him. They want to understand him. They're Greeks seeking wisdom. We, we want to know him. It, it's close to the word pisteo, which means to believe, to know Jesus. I want to get this guy, Philip. What's going on? And Philip's basic answer in the moment, though he doesn't say it out loud, is I have no idea what to tell you. Look what he does in chapter 12, verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew, hey, Andrew, we got some questions. Andrew and Philip together say, yeah, let's, let's, just, let's just take this one to Jesus. Isn't that great? I find this deeply encouraging. That's me so many times. Hey, I've got some questions. Yeah, we should just talk to Jesus about that. At this point, Philip's best answer would have been, I don't know, man, I just, the, there's these fish and my whole life is upended and there's these 5,000, I don't think I've even seen 5,000 fish in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is feeding these 5,000 people. He keeps healing and he, he keeps casting out demons. So Philip goes to Andrew for help. They go to Jesus and these Greeks are asking for wisdom. What does Jesus do? If we read the text thinking that the Greeks want to see Jesus physically with their eyes, it might seem like Jesus is kind of casting them aside. I'll just pass on this answer to them. I don't, I don't want to see them. But if they're asking, we want to realize Jesus, we want to know Jesus, his answer makes so much more sense. Jesus answered Andrew and Philip who went to Jesus. Maybe it was with the Greeks in their presence, maybe it was a message to send back to the Greeks. Here, either way, is Jesus' answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be crucified and raised from the dead. It's coming soon. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If a seed will go into the ground and shed its shell and begin to grow, it will grow up into a tree and bear much fruit. That's how the crucifixion works. I'm going into the ground like a seed, but I will come back up bearing much fruit. Look what Jesus says then to the Greeks. Here's what you need to know about me, Jesus is saying. You want to see me? You want to know me? You want to realize Christ? It's not about the fish. It's not just about the miracles themselves. Here, here's Jesus' message. Whoever loves his life loses it. And Jesus is about to prove that by going to the cross himself. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Jesus has just said, the hour has come for me to go into the earth and die. If you want to know what I'm about, follow me there. That's what it means to follow Christ. Greeks, you want to know more, you want to understand, you want to realize Jesus. Here's the understanding of Jesus. He's going to die and he's going to raise and be glorified. But if you love your life in this world, you've missed everything Jesus has to offer altogether. And if you love your life in this world, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose this world. You see, Jesus, but following Christ is about finding your life in another world. Not about getting life in this world like this in this time. Jesus goes to conquer the accuser with his blood for the saints forever. Which leads us here to forsake this life. Forsake this world. Forsake this realm. And prefer Jesus and what he secures for us by faith instead. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To, to not love the world and long for heaven where Satan is forever conquered more than we love our own lives to love Christ. And friends, this means that we love our own lives not even to death. We don't even love our lives all the way to death. You want to take my life here in this world, Satan thrown down and his demons and the beasts as we're going to see in the weeks to come, they want to have their way in this world. They want to have my life. That's fine, but I will be faithful to Christ because his blood is what conquers. Because he and the word of his testimony is what conquered, so I will be faithful to him even unto death. So friend, we have no reason whatsoever to cower before men when Jesus' blood has been offered in the presence of God? Have you cowered before men in recent days when you've had opportunity to share the gospel, to speak of Christ, to make a choice that would cause you to live in a way that is faithful to God but might separate you from the relationships with other people? We ought not cower before men. Christ's blood has conquered in heaven. John is peeking back and showing us, Christian is a piece of the larger argument in 12 through 14, what is going on in the heavenly places should affect what you are willing to give up here in this life, in this world. Here's an example. If you Google first American missionaries, you are more than likely going to find the name Adoniram Judson, maybe along with him the name William Carey. Well, about 10 years before William Carey sailed for India, and 30 years before Adoniram Judson reached Burma, there was a man named George Lyle. George was born into slavery in the 1700s in Virginia. His white master took him to church and it was in the preaching there that George was converted to faith in Christ. 
He immediately began teaching illiterate slaves to read the Bible and preach the gospel themselves. George had so much success that he was licensed as a minister and his master gave him his freedom in order to allow him to preach without hindrance. When George Lyle's owner died, he feared that he would be thrown back into the slavery, having at that time come to live in Georgia. So he indentured himself to a British soldier and George and his family moved with him to Jamaica in 1783. By 1793, 10 years later, George Lyle had baptized some 500 converts. And he was able to establish other congregations across Jamaica and trained others to help him in the preaching of the gospel. Lyle tried to keep from offending the whites in Jamaica by allowing by not allowing in his congregation those who were slaves and whose masters had not permitted them to attend. But in the 1790s, there was increasing persecution from some of the white slave owners. On one occasion, as George Lyle's congregation was about to partake in the Lord's Supper, a white man rode his horse directly into the church. Come, old Lyle, he said, give my horse the sacrament. Staring down the intruder, Lyle simply replied, No, sir, you're not fit to receive it yourself. The pastor in his pulpit faced the mounted rider as several uneasy moments passed until the arrogant trespasser finally turned his horse and left. One of the worst atrocities at this period of time occurred not directly under Lyle's ministry, but under the ministry of one of his converts who became a fellow preacher. Moses Hall. Determined to put an end to slave meetings, some slave owners broke up a prayer meeting that was being led by a man named David, one of Moses Hall's assistant pastors. They seized David, murdered him, cut off his head, and placed it on a pole in the center of the village as a warning to the other slaves. They dragged the preacher... Lyle's convert and assistant, Moses Hall, up to the grisly object. Now, Moses Hall, whose head is that? The leader of the murderers asked. David's, replied Moses. Do you know why he's up here? For praying, sir, said Moses. No more of your prayer meetings, he said. If we catch you at it, we will serve you as we have served David. And as the crowd watched, Moses, a disciple of George Lyle, knelt beside the pole and said aloud, Let us pray. And others gathered around him, and they knelt with him and prayed together for the salvation of the murderers. They loved not their lives, even unto death. What matters in this life? What are you going to spend your blood on? What will you spend your breath on? What will you spend your mouth on? Your money? Your time? Your passion? Our life is a mist a short vapor, and then it's gone. 
Love not your lives even unto death. We've conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Cower not before men. We've conquered by the blood. What can man do to us? When it comes time this week, maybe this afternoon, maybe in a few moments when you are out to eat at lunch, maybe just a passing conversation, maybe a coworker, maybe maybe any moment you can not even imagine the Spirit might well up in you to speak the name of Jesus Christ, to make a decision that would be faithful to Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself, am I living by what I see? Or do I see the spiritual reality behind the one I'm in? And by that, I live this life in this world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing our, our feebleness, our, our smallness in the world. You are great and we are very small. We can only pray that the words from your word would pierce our hearts. Father, we ask that you would convict us of sin. We confess now in our own hearts and minds ways that we've sinned against you. Ways that we've kept our mouths closed out of fear, not remembering the victory that has already been had in heaven. We pray that you would encourage us, God, with the blood of Jesus Christ overcoming the accuser, that we might be a more emboldened people in the days to come. Because we see by faith that you have conquered, that Christ has come in all of his power and all of his authority, and that we would leave here today with a heart that rejoices, like heaven rejoices, that the accuser has been thrown down, and in heaven there is victory. In the unseen places, there is victory. We give you praise. We give you glory. We pray that you would increase our joy. I'll give you just a moment to pray. Maybe you have things on your heart that you would confess the Lord is convicting. Maybe the Lord is encouraging. I pray that God would help you now. Just pray to the Lord in silence on your own. God, thank you for today, for the chance to gather and sing and pray, hear your word read and preached. We just give you praise for the great joy that it is to gather here in and around these saints for these things. We pray that you would help us this week be obedient to you, following your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.